All right, so we are in a series called Asking for a Friend. We've been looking at some tough questions in life, the questions that you've asked, and it's been fantastic. Today is the last week. We're diving into Christmas services next week, which is going to be amazing. Uh, and maybe we're going to come back and revisit this because there's so many things that we didn't even come close to touching on and the questions have continued to roll in. But today we're going to look at the topic of doubt and deconstruction. Everyone say deconstruction. Of doubt and deconstruction. I'll throw the questions at you and you'll get a hint and then we'll get into the word. Question number one. How do we talk about our faith with others when they have strong opposite opinions? Two, I'm hearing a lot about deconstruction lately and how it's causing people to leave the church. Can you please explain what deconstruction is, why it's leading people away from the church and how we can minister to people who are deconstructing? Great question. Um, Three, I believe the Bible is God's word and therefore infallible, but I struggle to articulate the validity of that view to friends who say the Bible can't be trusted because it's clearly written by human hands. Can you offer some insight, please? That's a good one. This one I love too. Uh, If a tree falls in the woods and there is no one to see or hear it, did it actually happen? I guess what I'm saying is, is truth really knowable? Is Jesus really the only way to God? Can we really trust the Bible as God's inerrant word? Great questions. There's so much in that. Um, You do need to have lunch. So I'm going to do the best I can in the time I've got to work through this. But I think it's something I want to encourage everyone to continue exploring, continue diving into, continue seeking. But effectively what we're looking at here is Christ versus philosophy. There is this move in Western philosophy at the moment, which is saying that... um, Meaning cannot be known. That truth cannot be known. And so out of that has come this phrase, deconstruction. And you need to understand that deconstruction begins with doubt. What I want to speak in today to today is that doubt is not the enemy of God. Doubt is not evil. In fact, All faith at some point, all genuine true faith must work its way through some degree of wrestling and doubt. And we'll come back to that, but it's actually an important thing. So if you're in this room right now and you're wrestling with some doubts and you're going, God, like, I don't understand. Don't become a person of unbelief, which is the rejection of God. Don't be afraid to sit in that space of doubt and wrestle. Like Jacob wrestled with God, wrestle with God, say, what is going on? But in so doing, you are actually in the presence of God wrestling with him. And that is the place to engage in doubt. We'll come and we'll look at all this stuff in a little bit, but here's how I'm going to tackle this. We're going to discuss deconstruction first and foremost. Once we understand what deconstruction is, we'll recognize there's a couple of ways that we can do this. There's secular deconstruction and actually there's biblical deconstruction. And we'll see this in the scripture. And then from there, we'll have a look at the word. How can we trust the word? And we'll just see what God does. So first and foremost, let's look at deconstruction. What is deconstruction? What I have here is a bag of Lego. 
Who likes Lego? Who calls it Lego? Who calls it Lego? We'll pray for you. Every time. So what I want you to do, I want you to imagine for a moment that this is the mind of an infant. This is the blank canvas, the mind of an infant, right? And therefore, the mind of an infant, it is, it is this beautiful time in life when it is, everything's new. And therefore, it's willing and it's ready to, to receive information, to start to form an understanding of the world, what is right, what is wrong, how does everything go together? This is the mind of an infant. Now imagine that infant is born into a beautiful Christian home with uh, an older brother and this infant is um, raised up to learn right from wrong and all these things. And so what this infant starts to do is starts to construct a worldview. So this is what we, this understanding of the world about how the world works works. And so they start to build a house. They start to construct an understanding. And let's say that that looks a lot nicer than that and larger. But they they begin to say, okay, this is right and wrong. This is good and bad. You know, this is evil. This is God. This is how the world works. And a part of that construction, let's imagine for a moment that this child, this infant, has a father who's interested in health and fitness and therefore thinks that smoking cigarettes is unhealthy. And let's say that this infant, no longer an infant, now a two or three-year-old, went for a walk with her father one day and happened across someone at a bus stop and saw a man smoking a cigarette, doing that. And let's say that that infant, in trying to construct an understanding of the world, said to her father, Dad, what's that? And the father, who has a particular view about the health effects of cigarette smoking, but also didn't want to spend too long talking about the carcinogenic effects of cigarette and then having to explain what carcinogens are, on and on and on, simply just uses the word, oh, babe, that's bad. That's bad. You don't want to do that. That is bad for you. That's a bad thing to do. Don't ever do it. (laughs) And so what happens is that infant, if I can find some more Lego, continues to construct their understanding of the world now with a paradigm that smoking equals bad. Smoking is bad. Let's say a couple of months later, that child is walking with her father now at a train station, happens upon someone who is smoking And because there is a construct that says smoking is bad, instead of whispering in her father's ear, that's bad, she does this. Smoker, 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 smoker. Dad, smoker, they're bad, they're bad. Imagination. And then imagine in that moment, the father obviously feeling quite uncomfortable, tries to calm said child down and then has to try and explain to the child that, hang on, you know, smoking doesn't equal bad. Do we have that conversation right now? No, let's just get on the train and move on. So the paradigm still exists. The construct still exists, smoking equals bad. But then imagine that that child 
happens upon years later, a dearly loved friend of the father's. And the father loves this person. She or he loves this person as a trusted friend, someone who I deeply adore, but then discovers that that person is a smoker. We have a problem. Because the construct, the paradigm that has been built is smoking equals bad. But this person's not bad. Now, we're not getting into the theology now of good, you know, that we're all sinners and all fallen short. That's... As far as this child is concerned, this person is someone I love and I trust. They're a good person. But they smoke. So what happens in this moment? One of two things. Firstly, either I choose to ignore the reality of what I've seen, that there's someone who doesn't fit my paradigm anymore because dad loves them, I love them, but they're doing this thing that equals bad. Either they ignore reality and just plow on, or what do they have to do? They have to deconstruct what had been formed and go through a process of deeper discernment in order to reconstruct a new paradigm in which they view the world. Does that make sense? This is what, when psychologists are talking about deconstruction, this is what it means. Every single human being on the planet deconstructs. Every single human being on the planet constructs. It is a part of living. It is a part of growing up. We are always constructing our worldview. We are always shaping, shifting, deconstructing, moving things around, trying to make sense of the world around us. That is what every human being does and is essential for faith. It's actually essential for faith because otherwise we never own it. Otherwise, I grow up in a family and all I ever do is just believe what I've been told by my mum and dad. I ignore the reality around me. I ignore the things I'm seeing and it never becomes mine. It's never strong or solid. It's never something I can truly own. So in order to build a strong house, it has to be a reconstructed house. Are you with me? And this is what we need to see now. Having said that, what does that mean? What's happening in the world today? Why are we seeing people leave the church? Why are we seeing people throw uh, in faith in Jesus under, the, under this guise of deconstruction? And this is where we gotta, we gotta get a little bit philosophical. Is that all right? Really, there's two, there's two forms of deconstruction. There's what I'm gonna call Western secular deconstruction. Everyone say secular deconstruction but then we have biblical deconstruction and we're going to have a look at a couple of passages in just a minute where you will see the deconstruction is all through the scriptures but there is a particular emphasis on how it should be done that the secular deconstruction misses let me let me lay out some dot points about secular deconstruction here's a definition it's the process by which we refine our worldview through the questioning of what we think we know to be true so that we can make sense of our reality. Whose mind spinning? Secular deconstruction. It comes from the idea that meaning 
is tied up in language. Let me give you an example. Um, I have, let's say that I have a yellow lab, a yellow lab. Now in hearing that language, some of you have straight away interpreted the meaning of that, that I have a dog of pale yellow pigmentation. Yes? Who thought that straight away? Who thought that that meant that I had a room with little gas plugs and pipettes and glassware in a hospital or in a school that had yellow paint on the walls? Anyone think that? So isn't that interesting that some of you in hearing Yellow Lab went, oh, he's got a dog that's yellow. Others went, oh, he's a scientist. And this is what deconstruction points out. It says, well, meaning is tied up in language. And here's the thing. They say, no one can ever really know the intent of language, that all language is understood through interpretation. And because language is interpreted, therefore meaning can't really exist because everyone sees it different. Therefore, all interpretations are valid. What you think is fine for you and what I think is fine for me. Therefore, there's lots of therefores. Therefore, truth can't really exist because all truth must be relative. Because meaning comes through language and language is interpreted. And therefore, if all truth is relative, then the Bible can't possibly be true and I can't possibly trust in Jesus. Do you follow the, the plumb line? This is the thing, but here's where it gets a bit confusing for people because what they do is they stop right there. But the mistake is you haven't deconstructed deconstruction because in getting to that point, you've got to this thing, well, my truth is my truth. All truth is relative. What you've forgotten is that you've just made an absolute statement that all truth is relative. So you've said truthfully that truth doesn't exist. It's saying I absolutely, it is absolutely true that there are no absolutes. Well, you've just completely discredited your own argument. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so what happens with deconstructionists, philosophical secular deconstructionism, is we land at this point where we say, well, I can't trust anything except for me. I am, I will determine truth. I will determine what's right. I will become my own God. I will subject that which is sovereign under my own lordship. He will submit to me and I will submit to no one. But in so doing, you are establishing meaning. You're saying that I am the one who gets to determine what's right and wrong. And you're not deconstructing your own self. Because if you deconstruct your own self, you'd realise, well, hang on, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm fallen. I make mistakes. Sometimes I'm conflicted and confused. And so what we need to do is recognise if you're going to deconstruct, you can't stop with self. You actually have to go the whole way and tear the whole house down. You've got to tear it all down if you're going to do it properly. Because if you land on self, guess what? It's the exact same sin of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, where the serpent comes to Eve and she says, did he really say that? Deconstruct truth. Did he really say that? You could be like him. 
Eve in that moment says, oh, actually, I wanna be my own God. She then sets herself up as Lord and the result is brokenness. And so we've got to understand something here, friends, that we need to look at the evidence. We need to look at the evidence. What is the evidence of humanity establishing itself as Lord? Is it helping or is it hurting? When I look at the world at the moment, when I look at the result of this deconstruction where everyone is their own God, everyone does as they own as they please, it sounds a lot like judges as well. It sounds like the Bible's already spoken about this and that actually there's nothing new under the sun and that maybe God was aware that this was coming. But when I look at that, what I see is mental health through the roof. I see suicide through the roof, depression through the roof, anxiety through the roof. I see our world, the Western culture especially, imploding in and on itself, where everyone is, is portraying a false edited reality to try and make everyone else think that they have it all together, when in actual fact, their world's turning inside out. The evidence of secular deconstruction is not good. And sometimes we have to look at the evidence and say, well, maybe there's something in that, yeah? Sometimes we look at the evidence and say, well, what is the evidence of actually me tearing the whole thing down and realising that, hey, I don't have it all together. There must be a higher power and putting our trust in God. Maybe the evidence of that is that we see societies built up, that we see sacrificial love, that we see hope, that we see blessing, that we see pain turned into joy, that we see joy in the midst of sadness, that we see this stuff happening in the world. And so we have this problem, secular deconstructionists. I'm, like, I'm always dumbfounded whenever I see a philosopher who espouses that there are no absolutes wearing a belt. If there are no absolutes, why are you wearing a belt? What does a belt do? It stops your pants falling down. Why do your pants fall down? Because of gravity. Oh, gravity, what's that? Is that a construct of humanity or is that just an absolute force that will push your pants down if you don't have your belt on? <laughs> and you put the belt on because you believe that there is another force, a force of friction, that if I do it tight enough, it will oppose and stand up against the force of gravity. So by you wearing a belt, you are showing that you believe in absolutes. Come on, somebody. So the next time you have a conversation with a philosopher who is espousing no absolutes and they're wearing a belt, just say, why are you wearing a belt? And let the conversation go where it will. This is what we need to understand about secular deconstructionism. It is flawed in that it doesn't deconstruct itself and it actually does believe in absolutes because it makes absolute statements that there are no absolutes. All right, how's philosophy 101 treating you all today? Now let's go to the Word and let's see if God has something to say about this. Let's start, I'm gonna give you two, thing, two places we're gonna go. We're gonna go New Testament and Old Testament. You should be taking notes. If you, this is, I'm teaching today. I might get preachy later, but I want us to get our heads around this. John chapter 20, two stories. First one in John chapter 20, the second one we're gonna to go to Ecclesiastes. John 20 from verse 24. Jesus has died on a cross. He's risen. He's appeared to the disciples. And Thomas wasn't with the disciples when he first appeared. Here's what happens. 
Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and watch this. Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them. Friends, when you are wrestling with this idea of doubt, when you are wrestling with deconstruction, when you are going, God, there is stuff that I don't understand. There is suffering that I don't understand. There is confusing things in the world. When you are wrestling with that, don't distance yourself from the people of God. Thomas stayed with the disciples. He put himself in that place. Secondly, if you are someone who is a deep conviction of faith and there is someone who is wrestling, don't make them feel stupid. Don't push them to the side. No, welcome them. The disciples welcomed Thomas. They said, come be with us, Thomas, in your wrestling, in your doubt. We have got you. We are helping you through this. We love you. We will continue to love you. It's so important as the church that we maintain that posture. And so what happens then, a week later, they're in the house. Thomas is with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Of course, he's going to say that. They're probably freaking out that Jesus just banged himself through the door. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then the Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What has Thomas done? He followed Jesus for three years He was presented with a reality where he saw Jesus die on a cross and he was caused to reevaluate everything. He deconstructed everything and he got to this point of, I don't know if I can believe and yet he stayed in the house of worship. In the midst of his doubt, because of what he had seen and the evidence from the past, he stayed in the house of worship and as he stayed in the house of worship, Jesus appeared to him, his life was transformed and I don't know why we call him Doubting Thomas. We shouldn't. Jesus didn't call him Doubting Thomas. The disciples didn't call him Doubting Thomas. They just called him Thomas. And Thomas went on to preach the gospel in India and now there's generational faith that spans 2,000 years. The church in India is the direct result of this man who deconstructed and struggled and wrestled with unbelief and went to India and proclaimed the good news of the gospel. Stop calling him doubting Thomas and call him brother. And we need to do the same for our brothers and sisters right here in this place. You are a brother, you are a sister. Jesus is with you in your wrestling and in your doubt. That is true. Now, that's one example. Let's go to Ecclesiastes because this is awesome. When we read the wisdom literature, it's called wisdom literature for a reason. Everyone say wisdom. Wisdom means so much more than understanding. It's this profound relationship between revelation and understanding and knowledge that all comes together given by the Spirit of God. 
Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. Solomon wrote a book called Proverbs. And when we read the wisdom literature, if you're going to read Proverbs, you need to read Ecclesiastes. And if you're going to read Ecclesiastes, you need to read Job. And you need to read them hand in hand. Because when you read Proverbs, it's like this sharp, blisteringly smart, you know, incredibly like, intelligent guy talking about the construct, the way the world is. And he starts saying, if you do this, this is what happens. If this happens, then this will happen. You know, A, B, C, D, one plus one equals two. He just outlines these profound ways and rules for living. Amazing. But then he gets older and he goes through some stuff. And the same guy that wrote Proverbs writes another book at the end of his life called Ecclesiastes, and this is how it begins, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. The same dude went through some stuff. What's he done? He's lived his life. And in living his life, he's been presented with a reality that didn't match the initial construct, so he has had to deconstruct. And he's torn it down, and he goes through this phase of it's all meaningless, it's all pointless. And he goes and says, you know, pleasure's meaningless, toil's meaningless, even time itself is meaningless. And he carries on, but then something happens to him. In the tearing down, in the deconstruction of what he's known, he's left with something profound. Oh, I feel like preaching. Chapter 12, verse 6. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave him meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything's meaningless. But verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commands. For this is the duty of humanity. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, deconstructs everything. He sees everything falling apart. He's like, it's all meaningless. And yet when he gets to the end of his deconstruction... He looks out the window and he sees beauty. He experiences gravity. The sun still rises. He's like, it seems meaningless, but at the end of the day, the only explanation is that someone put it there. Where does, why is there beauty? Why, if it can't be, it, I didn't put it there. No human being put it there. At the end of the day, there has to be someone or something outside of time and space. And Solomon at the end of deconstruction comes to the conclusion, there is a God, he is good, so fear him and obey him. He gets right back to the foundation and he starts reconstructing. And he starts building on this new foundation that is now sure and true that there is a rock on which I can stand if you stand on yourself, that will be a shifting sand and you will fall. When you stand on the rock of who Jesus Christ is, he says it is a rock and your feet will not move. 
So don't be afraid to deconstruct. Follow Solomon. But here's the thing. Biblical deconstruction, wisdom deconstructs so that truth can be discovered. Secular Western ideology deconstructs so that truth can be disregarded. The two are very different. One says, I'm going to genuinely seek meaning and truth. The other says, I am confused and therefore I want to do what I want to do. If you're going to deconstruct, go the whole way. And don't just deconstruct the church. Here's the thing. If you believe the church is the rock, it will fail you. The church is built on the rock. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. What rock? The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock that Moses hit and the water came out. Jesus is the rock on which we stand. Come back to Christ. You can critique the church all you want. You will find holes and flaws left, right and centre. You will find every excuse to leave because we are a people and we are broken and we make mistakes. You will find pastors who embezzle money. You will find leaders who have affairs. You will find corruption. There will always be something that doesn't fit your paradigm of perfection because we are not perfect, but Jesus is. So deconstruct the church, but land on the rock. This is my story, friends. I'm preaching now because this is my story. I grew up in the church, beautiful, loving, wonderful parents. Thank you, mum and dad, for who you are and what you've done. They raised me right. They gave me a good foundation. They put good constructs in place. But I got to 16, 17 years old and I was looking around me and I went, is this all there is? Is this really it? Is this truth? How can I actually know? Why Jesus, not Muhammad? Why Christianity, not Buddhism? Is it even worth, like, is it all just this charade? And so I began to pull it all down. And the more I pulled it all down, I landed at this point where I looked out, perhaps like Solomon, and went, well, there's still beauty in the world. Yesterday, I was in a swimming pool with my gorgeous little niece, There she is in my little arms, trusting me for her life in the water, smiling, beautiful eyes. How can you look like there's infants in this house? How can you look in the eyes of a child and go meaningless? You can't. You can pretend like that's the case, but you can't. There is something about the detail in a human being's eye that just says design. There is something about the detail of a heart that I don't think about my heart beating, it just beats. There's something about that desire, that, that construction that says designer. There's something about the fact that none of you are thinking about breathing except for right now that I've said it, but you're just breathing. There's something about that that says design. There's something about the trees that say design. Even atheist scientists talk about the design of the universe. And so I got to that point and I went, well, there has to be a God. And if there is a God, how can I know Him? Can He be known? And this is where I landed. I'm gonna need a little bit of help to put some things up. I'm gonna give you just an illustration of how I got to where I got to. And I hope 
that it is helpful for you. Here's, here's a selection of significant ancient texts or authors. And so the first thing I did is, well, can I, like, if the Bible is God's word, if this is something that God has given us to say that we can know him, can I actually trust it? Knowing there has to be a God, which text should I choose? So I started researching some philosophy and I stumbled across Aristotle and I realized Aristotle that there is a thousand manuscripts. This is divided by 10, by the way, just so that we can fit it on the table. A thousand manuscripts, so a hundred pieces of paper written 1,200 years after. So the manuscripts we have, we've got a, a thousand of them, but the, the one that we have occurred 1,200 years after his actual writing. Then you go to this guy called Pliny the Elder. He's a natural historian. We have 200 manuscripts, 250, sorry, of Pliny the Elder, written 900 years after the actual moment when he wrote. Then you come to Caesar and his tales on the Gaelic Wars, 250 documents written 900 years after the fact. Then you come to one that no one's going to deny, Homer's Iliad. Who's read Homer's Iliad in high school or uni? Literacy people. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't say that. 1800, effectively. 1800. Written 400 years after the event. Then we come to the New Testament. Six thousand original Greek manuscripts within thirty to a hundred years of the event. We're only just getting started. Eight thousand ancient languages from all over northern Africa, Eastern Europe. Eight thousand written within 100 years of the event. 10,000 copies of the Latin Vulgate written within 300 years of the event. Another 40,000 fragments of manuscripts. 40,000 written within 300 years of the event. Here's the thing. You will not find a historian who rejects this as true based on 1,000 manuscripts, 1,200 years. You will not find a historian who rejects Pliny based on 250 manuscripts and 900 years. You will not find a historian who rejects Caesar's account of the Gaelic, account of the Gaelic Wars 
though 900 years at 200 documents. You will not find anyone who's rejecting that Homer wrote the Iliad and that it was true, as in he truly wrote that book based on 1,800 documents and 400 years, and yet countless historians try and deny the evidence of Jesus Christ. That he died, was buried, was rose again. Friends, the evidence is insurmountable. The evidence is astounding. It is astounding. And, oh, there's so much more I want to say. So here's what we've got to look at. We've got to look, when we consider, this is the process that I went through, this is the process I think everyone should go through who's deconstructing. When you are starting to question, when you're down, you're saying, can I trust the word? You've got to look at a few things. You've got to look at the literacy style. Everyone say literacy. You have to look at the proximity. Everyone say proximity. When was it written? You've got to look at the quantity. Everyone say quantity. And you've got to look at the quality. Everyone say quality. Now, the quality will come from the proximity and the quantity and the literacy. Let me, let me quote some C.S. Lewis to you. You all know I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist who came to faith going through this process, deconstructing everything he knew and landing on this foundation. And he talked about he's a professor in literacy and he looks at literacy styles. And he was talking about the Word of God and the way it's written. Here's, you happy to listen to a quote for a bit? You guys with me? We're all right? You're right online? Yep, good. This is C.S. Lewis. Another point is that on that view, you would have to regard the accounts of Jesus as being legends. Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend and am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. Thanks, C.S. Lewis. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There is nothing, even in modern literature, until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. For example, the story of the woman taken in adultery. We are told Christ bent down and scribbled in the dust with his finger. Nothing comes of this. No one has ever based any doctrine on it. And the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art only instituted in the last hundred years. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that the thing happened and the author put it in simply because he saw it. There is something about the nature of this book and the way that it is written that speaks to its authenticity. Secondly, the depth of Scripture is the most incredible, astounding, magnificent thing you could ever encounter. I've got a little pictograph for you. Can we throw that up there? This pictograph, if it's going to work, 
is biblical cross-reference in picture. What do I mean by that? I mean that when the author of Hebrews quotes the Psalms or quotes Exodus, which he does multiple times, each one of those quotes is represented by a colourful loop. Genesis being on the left, Revelation being on the right. When you put every single biblical cross-reference in an image, that's what it looks like. Come on, somebody. That is extraordinary. Over thousands of years, that depth and intricacy, and that's only the ones that are actually cross-referenced. That's not the one where you read about the serpent and then you can quote the serpent in Revelation. That's not about all the, the depth as you explore, as I talked about Genesis, the sin of the garden, how it links to Jesus talking about pride. The depth of this thing is unplumbable, if that's a word. Every other text, at some point, you're going to go, do you know what, mate? I reckon we've just about covered it. Ask an English teacher. At some point, they get bored. Why? Because they've got to the bottom of it. No one can ever get bored of this because there is no end to its riches. You cannot plummet. You can't. Someone said to me the other day, how do you know what to preach all the time? I'm like, oh my goodness. If only I had a thousand lives, I might still scratch the surface. This thing is incredible. There is no way that this is just a human construct. Yes, it came through human hands, but isn't that God? God creates human beings with the capacity for language. We just said at the beginning, meaning is informed through language. So God gives a humanity the capacity for language and says, now I'm going to work through you. How does he establish the, like, how does he proclaim the gospel to the world? Through the church. Who are the church? People. This is how God works. He, he, he creates so that his creation can be creative and therefore experience express his glory and his creativity to the world. It makes perfect sense that human beings have written it. And let me ask you something. If the Bible just dropped out of the sky, would it make any difference? People would still go, oh, can you really know? How do we know it fell from the sky? At some point, we all trust in something. Every single one of you have blindly sat down on a chair without knowing if it was going to collapse or not. At some point, we all trust something. I would rather trust this than this. So we have the literacy style. We have the quantity of content. One more illustration. Guys, I'm going to ask you to move for a sec. The next thing we have is proximity. Watch out, babe. Uh, Maxie, where are you? Can I steal you? Where'd my, where'd my little ball go? Awesome. Thanks, Benj. Where's Max Wheezy? Let's give Max a round of applause. All right. Maxie, each step represents 100 years. 
Okay, this is 1,200 years from the target. Do you think you can accurately throw that ball through that hoop? He doubts himself. (laughs) Is it possible? Yeah, of course it's possible. Is it likely? Well, let's have a look. Ready, Maxie? Go for it. Get it, Max. Good effort, Max. Round of applause. Now, come, come to 900 years. Let's have a look at 900 years. Thank you. Oh, terrible in front of everyone. All right, 900 years. So let's have a look. So we have, we have wonderful things that are written that everyone trusts as true. 900 years. Let's have a look at accuracy. How can you go? Good try. Good try. All right, come forward. Come forward to 400. That was better. So now we're 400 years from the target. Is it more likely that this will be accurate? Absolutely. Let's have a go. Oh, so close. All right, come forward to 100 years. Who thinks Maxi can get this in? Do it for us, big fella. Woo! Max Wheezy, everybody, you may take a seat. What is the point? The point is that proximity breeds accuracy. The closer something is written to the event, the more likely it is to be true. We have eyewitness account. Eyewitness. They saw it and they recorded it. Therefore, the likelihood of that being accurate and true is incredibly high. All right? These things, 1,200 years 900, 400 even, within 30 years. If you have an eyewitness account, it is authentic and trustworthy. It's trustworthy. And so in your wrestling, don't be afraid to deconstruct. But Timothy, Timothy gets to a point where he sees Jesus' hand and he says, my Lord and my God. I wonder what it will be for us as we stay with the people of God, as we stay in the house of worship, as we're invited into the struggle, invited into that place of wrestling, invited even into the place of doubt and say, hey, stay with us, keep searching, deconstruct, but deconstruct so that you would seek truth, not so that you would seek to disregard truth. Because at the end of the day, there's only one who stands and that's Jesus Christ. And I for one want to put my trust in him. In the midst of the questions, in the midst of the wrestling, he is the rock on which we can stand. Band, you can come up and we're going to close. But I've had it on my heart today really strongly to pray into this. Uh, To pray for you guys in this room, yes, definitely. For anyone who's in that place where your mind is twisting and turning and there's questions, I'd love to pray with you that you would come back and just set your feet upon the rock and go, do you know what? This I can trust and I can slowly reconstruct. But I've really had on my heart today to pray for family and friends because you guys are here, but we all have family and friends who are not here who maybe once were. 
because they have encountered philosophy 101 at university and they were never taught the truth about deconstruction. They were never taught to deconstruct deconstruction, just to poke holes in everything else. And my, I just have this burning desire to pray for our family and friends, to pray for those who have wandered but need to come back to the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes? Yes? So I'm gonna invite you to stand to your feet and we're gonna do this a little differently. If you are wanting prayer individually or wanting prayer support as you pray for family and friends, feel like this person is in my life and I need to pray with them and for them and with my brothers and sisters, this is our disciple moment getting around our Timothys. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray with each other. So pop your head. Some of you are like, I'm a visitor. This is uncomfortable. Welcome to Hills Baptist. We're a family on mission. We pray for each other. If you want prayer or wanna pray for someone, pop your hands up right now. Pop it up nice and high so we can see. Real high. Don't be afraid. Prayer is the best thing in the world. It's the power of God. Awesome. Hands up. Fantastic. Church, let's get around some of these people. Hands up high so we can see. Hands up high. Church, go. Go lay hands on people and start praying with each other. Keep your hands up. If you want prayer, hands up until someone's got their hand on your shoulder. Let's spend some time praying that the spirit of truth would come, not a spirit of deception. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.